Let's get into it. Are you recording okay. on your end? Let me start and then um, do cameras off because I know you. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Okay. Okay. I am recording. Okay. And okay. Oh, and was the was the bio that I read for you last time, that was good, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't, there's like a slight change, but I wouldn't worry about it. Okay. All right. Okay. Ready? Yes. Let's go. Hello. Hi. Welcome back. Hi. No, not yet. Don't say sorry, yet. sorry. I'm waiting. Sorry. Go ahead. I'll I'll cue you in. Oh wait, you can't see me. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to the Content Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Halverson. And boy, do we have a juicy topic for you today. That's right, friends and neighbors. It's AI. Uh, And here to talk about AI and LLMs is uh, my friend and neighbor. Well, she's not really my neighbor, but in my heart, she is. uh, Morgan Marie Quinn. Let me tell you about Morgan. Morgan is a recovering mommy blogger, which we should just dedicate an entire episode to that, and content design leader at Google, where she oversees content teams across Bard and Google Assistant. Before joining Google, she led content design and strategy for companies like ServiceNow, Compass, and Intuit. When she's not wrangling people, processes, and large language models, you can find her ignoring her inbox, shuttling her teenagers to their social engagements, and perfecting the art of the power nap. Very admirable. Welcome, Morgan, to the show. Hi, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. We have so much to talk about, and it's so complicated. Yes, it is. Okay, so we have, uh, I have, we have, after much conversation, put together a list. I never walk into interviews with a list. I always just tell people, oh, just show up and pretend that we're having coffee and conversation will flow naturally. And it turns out large language models, not necessarily an easy thing to just chat about over coffee. So we are going to have a little bit more of a structured conversation. Perhaps my listeners will appreciate that (laughs) instead of just the rambling. No, that's not true. Not every conversation is rambling. Um, So if I screw a question up, you tell me that is the wrong question to ask. So let's just start at the top. Okay. Oh, actually, the top is not the large language model. The top is what I always start with, which is Morgan. Can you please tell us a little bit about how you came to your position as a content design superstar at Google? Wow, superstar might be a stretch, but um, oh my gosh, I had such a winding road to get here, to be honest, but I know that that is really common amongst folks that work in this industry, and I always love hearing people's journeys. So for me, like you mentioned, I did start as a mom blogger. I stayed home with my kids for about four years. I had worked in personal finance and took time off when I became a mom. And during that time, I started blogging. It was very random. It I was filling my days with something to do for myself that didn't have anything to do with children. And um, it was kind of like at that time, I would say it was the early 2010s. Um, like the rise of the mommy blogger. It was like, it was very much like a time to be blogging. And 
Uh, through my blog, I started a little freelance business. I was doing product reviews. I was a managing editor for another site, doing social media management, and I started working with brands. And this was like before influencers and TikTok and like all the stuff that's going on now, a totally different world. And through that work, I um, started writing for a product called Mint, which was a personal finance tool owned by Intuit. And that was like the perfect blend of my personal finance background. And now this like freelance writing kind of marketing thing I had going. Um, And so I started writing for their blog and then eventually got hired full time there as their managing editor and social media manager. And it was just an incredible opportunity. This door opened for me. And that's really how I got into tech. Inevitably, like a lot of us who found ourselves in tech or in marketing or social media, I started working on the product and whether it was doing in-product copy or launching campaigns, working with product managers and some of my product marketing partners on making the UI better. And that really led to a more formalized role as a content designer. I mean, content design like wasn't a thing back then, um, but as it became a thing, and I would say Intuit was definitely like one of the first companies to formalize content design as a role. So then I, that's what I did. I worked there for a number of years, spent the bulk of my career working at Intuit across a ton of different products like TurboTax, QuickBooks Self-Employed, Quicken when they owned it at the time. So got a such incredible, valuable experience there. And I was really ready to grow my career and stretch in some new ways and was pursuing more of a leadership role and ended up getting an opportunity to work at ServiceNow. And they didn't have a content design practice at all. And they were interested in standing one up. So I went to ServiceNow and stood up the content design and conversation design practice over there, which was amazing. Also blew my mind. Totally different product. It's an automation tool built for engineers. Very technical. My brain was broken like most of the day. I have never felt more like I didn't know what I was doing except maybe today in my role. (laughs) And I was really craving like getting back into the more consumer facing space. And so I ended up taking a role at Compass and The senior vice president at ServiceNow, senior vice president of design, I should say, left ServiceNow to go to Compass to grow their UX team. And he contacted me and was like, hey, do you want to do it again over here? We had, you know, built that practice, content design practice together at ServiceNow, and he wanted to do it at Compass. And I was like, yeah, sure. So I took a leap and went over there. It was definitely a wild experience. Uh, They were in this hyper growth phase very much operating like a startup. And at the same time, I had been talking to Google for a while. I had had a recruiter I was uh, connected with. I had explored some different roles, hadn't really found the thing that I was looking for until this opportunity came up to work on assistant. And it was really intriguing to me. It it checked a lot of my boxes, most importantly, that I had really been wanting to get out of the UI. I was just like kind of tired of talking about strings and style guides and capitalization and should we use ampersands and, you know, all those things are important, but I just really wanted something different. And, um, and so, yeah, I joined a little over a year ago. It hasn't been that long and have been working in this 
you know, assistive technology LLM space ever since. That is quite a journey. And the weird thing is you're <laughs> 32 years old. It's you know, so in my heart, in my heart, I'm 32. I know, we <laughs> all are. And yet, why am I so tired? Um, <laughs> so what is interesting to me about that arc is not only that you were, I mean, who just like goes from mommy blogger to like standing up a content design practice at a major brand, you know, in, I don't know, fewer than 20 years. But I mean, not only have you worked with so many interesting organizations, but you also have just like sort of jumped headfirst into this kind of terrifying new world. Well, not terrifying because robot overlords, but just because it's complicated <laughs> world of AI and, you know, of, of training these LLMs. And so I am going to ask you to explain to me. Actually, I'm asking for a friend. No, it's me. Um, if you could, you explain to me what is a large language model? You're working on Bard. You're working on Google Assistant. What is a large language model in the first place? Yes, this is a great place to start. You know, I didn't know anything about large language models when I started this role. So, you know, I know a lot of folks are just learning about them now, and I'm not that far ahead of you all. So we're all in it together. So. An LLM, you know, like you said, stands for large language model. And so essentially what it is, is it's just a type of artificial intelligence. And we call that AI. So you hear people talking about AI, that's artificial intelligence. And essentially what they do is they take in huge amounts of data and then they use all that data and, and they use it to learn and understand and then generate new content. Now, Data in the world of LLMs is content, and LLMs need a huge amount of content to learn from. And whatever type of data or content they're taking in is eventually what the LLM is going to become an expert in. So it starts to spit out related content. It learns, and so it really creates new content. It is not spitting out verbatim or exactly what took into it but it starts to generate its own. And they're not human at all, but they can sound very human-like if the content going into them was created by humans. And so they're really interesting because they can surprise us a lot. They go farther than what we would expect a machine to be able to create. It just occurred to me for the first time, what if we were feeding AI content created by AI? You're not Whoa. the first person to ask that question. Then what happens? <laughs> then is it a robot or is it like, does AI eat itself? Is that what That's, happens? You know, I'm sure there's a movie coming out about this in the next six months. That will I am, and I am totally not interested <laughs> in seeing that movie. Not even a little bit, not even a little I bit. Will, so I will say though, that like this question of what it is, what it is, is super important. But the other thing that I is really important to wrap your mind around it is how they work. So it's like what it is, but how it actually works, I find to be more grounding. So um, I talk a lot about how building an LLM is like teaching a baby how to talk. Uh, it's an easy concept for me to grasp. You know, I'm not a childhood development expert, but I always say I do have my own little LLMs at home. And so raising kids, you know, there are things you're supposed to do to encourage language development in them. And there are a lot of similarities with encouraging that language development that we do in LLMs. 
And I know it sounds weird, but, you know, hear me out. So babies are like these little LLMs that haven't learned how to talk, right? And so you have to start giving them inputs because babies ultimately learn from the world around them. And all the ex stuff they're experiencing are these data inputs. It's like data is going into babies all the time in their learning. So like we read to them, we talk to them, we'll reflect back to them. Like when they are using baby talk, we'll say, oh, like, are you asking for, for, for more milk or, or do you want me to pick you up? Right? Like that's how we reflect back to babies so they can start learning to talk themselves. And then we just expose them to a lot of experiences and then they start to learn. And LLMs are a lot like that, you know, and like babies, babies talk a lot of gibberish and LLMs do too. Uh, so like a, a baby LLM can make sense sometimes and then it starts speaking baby talk and like it goes off the rails on you, just like babies. So what you have to do is keep exposing them to new and more advanced information so they can keep developing and growing and learning. And so LLMs are similar in that like you have to expose LLMs to a ton of content so they can learn. You also have to correct them all the time when they get stuff wrong because they do. And then you have to give them a lot of examples to learn from. And so like little kids, like I said, LLMs will say the darndest things. They, my favorite story is I was working on an LLM experiment last year to see if we could give this LLM more music expertise. And so we put all this music data into the LLM and did some training and fine tuning. And we, we started testing it and it would not stop talking about Taylor Swift. Like, <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> like, it was so bizarre. We were cracking up and like, we didn't put anything in there like specific to Taylor Swift. I don't know why, but it was just so funny. So they, they do these surprising things. You don't always have full control over what they do. So you're just basically like constantly testing and monitoring and like course correcting them so the training can get better and better. So first of all, <laughs> that's amazing. I don't even, I have, I'm like, are you, it's not human, but even the robots want to talk about Taylor Swift. Um, She's that powerful. I know. She that's that powerful. Maybe she owns the AI just in general. Um, <laughs> so if I, and I, I just want to say, like, if, if I feel like everyone at this point has played around with chat GPT or some version of that, um, of some version of generative AI, at least like, you know, intentionally, we've all been working with that, you know, without knowing it um, for years, but at least intentionally. And, and a thing that I, that I've found when I'm, when I'm messing around with chat GPT and I'm still trying to figure out how to use it in a way that actually helps me instead of just like derails yeah. me and entertains me for hours at a time um, <laughs> is the process of actually teaching it and correcting it. And I feel like in some places, in some ways, I'm like doing a public service by correcting it about whatever it's talking about. But what happens when humans, is this the disinformation thing? When humans get in there and like purposely feed information to LLMs that is incorrect or that is, you know, I, I is terrible. Like what happens yeah. then? Does that, because I'm sure that especially at Google, and I know that I know that we've got to, you know, that you can't directly address some of these topics, but like how how do authors or how do we govern things like that? It's such a good question. And I don't know if anyone has the answer right now. 
Um, I'll say in general are definitely things LLMs are not good at or they're, they are vulnerable to. So if an LLM is getting a ton of information from, let's say, like sources on the internet, um, factuality or, you know, accuracy is a huge issue because the LLM can't always decipher what is a fact or a good source, right? It's just learning from a bunch of information. And if that information is inaccurate, the LLM is going to spit out inaccurate information. And it's sort of like, how do you, I'll, it's like, how do you fact check the internet? And so I think there's still a huge opportunity in that space to get the factuality part right. And as far as like people intentionally training the models to be inaccurate, um, I'm sure that happens. I I think about it all the time, like how are people going to be using this technology for more nefarious purposes? I will say though, for folks who are working on building LLMs, something to be prepared for is not so much that users are going to be intentionally feeding LLMs incorrect information. They will, some of them, intentionally um, provoke an LLM to see what kind of response it's going to give. And usually those provocations are offensive. And so you have to think about like, what is the worst thing someone is going to say to this LLM? What What is like the most nefarious thing they're going to try to get out of it or content they're going to create or or whatever it is? And so people will really abuse an LLM just to see how it responds. I So I actually have a question. This is not on the list of questions that we came up with. But I <laughs> oh, do have no. a question. I know. Now we're going off the rails. <laughs> this is more like one of my typical interviews. All right. We're taking a look. So, but I have a question. Like, you know, if if a platform like Instagram or, you know, what used to be Twitter, like if they can spot, you know, offensive material or racist material or dangerous material or whatever, you know, and they can shut it down. Is that a thing that a large language model can do? Just like refuse to like, just stop talking to somebody that's trying to, that's trying to provoke it or to feed, you know, to sort of like train it to be terrible. Yeah, that capability for sure exists. And I know that a lot of companies who are working on this technology have those guardrails in place. It's just that it is hard, I would say, not impossible at all. And luckily there are teams like with this kind of deep expertise who are only thinking about this problem, which is amazing. It's hard to predict just how terrible people might be or hard to predict always how an LLM is going to respond because the content that they're creating is organic. And so for sure, there are ways to do a full stop on a conversation, but it's always a work in progress. Like you should never consider that work done. Like, oh yeah, we checked that box. We're good to go. It's like, it's constant work. 
Let's then slide back over to the official <laughs> list of questions and talk about the work itself. I wonder if you could, because I know LLMs aren't just built with me sitting at a desk with ChatGPT training it, you know, like, no, that's actually not how you make a cake. You don't add. No, I, I don't know. I did never ask ChatGPT to tell <laughs> do me. Do you correct ChatGPT when it oh, gets sure. wrong? I oh, do. Okay. Yeah, that's for helpful. sure. Hey, yeah. you know what? I'm a responsible citizen of the internet. That's what Look I think that that's, that's important. <laughs> and I do it for hours. No, I don't do it for hours. Um, <laughs> so, but talk to me a little bit, like who is involved with making an LLM? I mean, not just on my team, but other people I've talked to who are working on the same technology. There are, these teams are incredibly diverse. So You'll definitely see like that traditional triad of UX, PM, Eng that you would find on other product teams. But there's also data folks, operations people, marketing folks, research, linguists. I mean, I'm probably leaving out so many roles. You know, from my experience, I would say it's very much just like an all hands on deck type of situation. And everyone is bringing something to the table in this environment. So it's really rewarding for people who just love that highly collaborative but experimental type of environment. I actually didn't know that there were like marketing people involved. I mean, linguists make sense, but you know, but marketers and researchers. And so I'm having trouble like getting my head wrapped <laughs> around why does it take that many people? Like, because at a very, very basic level, it's like, okay, large language model, we need some people to go and like, or some bots or whatever to go find a ton of content, whether it's on the internet or it's from our internal servers, or it's from, you know, the mommy blog that we wrote for 20 years. Like let's feed all of that into a, a person needs to like feed that into the system. And then there needs to be somebody who is like training it. What are all these other people doing? Now, I can't say exactly what everyone is doing across different companies, I think first, you know, to the point of like, well, the content already exists. It is not necessarily just pulling content from the internet. I'm sure some companies are doing that. Not every company is doing that. There are definitely implications with that, right? Not all content is just free to use however anyone wants to use it. You know, there's just interesting tasks like, you know, you I know you were surprised that there's marketing teams heavily involved. Some of like, I think the more fun things to think about that with that partnership are like, when you go to any of the LLMs, whether it's ChatGPT or BARD or any other tool, and you go to those sites and you, they'll give you examples of prompts, right? Like you'll see They'll, they'll help you get started. Try this, try that, or, or whatever it is. Well, all anything I would hope that is being marketed as a, a prompt, like a great experience for an LLM, and, and it is something that's been heavily vetted, right? And so like that prompt should work in real life, should be tested many, many, many times to make sure it's consistent and stable and gives you a great answer every time, uh, should be relevant to your market or like a real use case that people can wrap their minds around. And hopefully that's grounded in research. Everybody really, I think, in these environments has to work very closely together in that way. So what you're saying is you need to design an experience for your large language model. That's what you're saying to me. Oh, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, but it's, yeah, it's, it's that simple. <clears throat> no, it, it does, you know, I, I, again, I mean, it just, it feels, it's such a complicated topic. I'm not going to lie to you. I ignored it for like months. I was just like, I'm too, I'm too old. I've worked too hard. Somebody else is going to need to figure this out because I'm going to just kick back and I'm going to just continue to talk about my website content strategy. So, yeah. but, but, you know, diving in, it does, your brain does sort of just want to do the straightforward thing. Like, oh, this is just like talking to a customer service bot that I have yeah. done a million times and that I have hated doing, but this is just more fun and it's more mysterious. And like thinking about the entire <laughs> machine that goes behind the LLM is just really, really mind blowing. Yeah, so I, I know, one oh, of, go ahead. One of the harder transitions, I will say, going from like a more traditional content designer UX background role into this work is wrapping your mind around the ambiguity or sort of lack of control you have over the output. And so we're so used to working on a UI where we control the strings, right? Or we're working on a chat bot that is in a flow that has a lot of logic in it. And we know exactly what the chat bot is going to say to the customer, depending on what the customer is trying to do. And, and this isn't that. It is, you know, we don't control the output we are crafting an experience like you said and trying to train this LLM to behave or perform in this certain way but give it space to do its own thing at the same time in other words that's good parenting right like you just described good parenting yeah Yeah. it is I mean yeah it, it really is like raising up this baby LLM so Bard is just a little baby. That's really all it is. I mean, I think Bard's, you know, maybe a young adult. So when I first met you, one of the things I remember you saying is I need more content designers. Like I already yeah. have so many content designers on my team. I need more and more and more. And so can you talk to me a little bit about, and we we go back and forth on the podcast sometimes about the role of a content designer mm-hmm. and just to, just to level set for listeners that is uh, someone who is working with content within apps and services mm-hmm. uh, versus like a website content strategist who's somebody who is wrangling, you know, content across websites or within, you know, working closely with UX folks like IA and research and so on. Um, not that content designers don't do that, but I just wanted to, I just wanted to clarify that content designers are folks who are specifically working within digital apps and services. So talk to me about how content strategists, content designers, like what are our superpowers when it comes to diving into these teams that are training and building these LLMs? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think what makes content designers really strong in this space, I mean, there are a few things, but first of all is our ability to really understand the needs of users and what kind of content will deliver on those needs. And especially with LLMs, we need content that's clear, understandable, and conversational. And that is really one of our big superpowers, right? It's like grounded in user needs. And so LLMs need a lot of that kind of content, clear, understandable, conversational, to learn and how to embody the traits. Because ultimately, that is really what makes or breaks an experience when you're using an LLM. So, you know, we see it even now with a lot of AI-generated content, right? It's wordy, it might be too technical, it's nonsensical or robotic. And so 
all those things can be improved by content design. I think also content designers are just natural dot connectors. Like we tend to work across a ton of different projects. Um, and I know we don't like that and we feel spread thin, but it does give us an advantage here. So we're really good at scaling solutions because we are so resource constrained. And so, you know, we have those pain points as a community, but it really gives us a lot of strength in the LLM world. So a lot of the work is seeing these like word problems, right? Or common themes across the work. And because of that unique lens that we bring of being dot connectors, we're really good systems thinkers. And LLMs are basically giant word systems and they need a systematic approach to developing training content. And then I think if I had to say another superpower, I mean, content designers and content strategists, however we want to define everybody, we're really creative folks. And this, as technical as this space is, it is a great one to flex that skill. So LLMs are in dire need of personality and conversationality. So right now, I think that's a huge opportunity for us to be differentiators, not only in our role, but create products that are differentiated. And so the only way that LLMs are ever going to be like interesting, conversational, is if they get the kind of content that trains them to do that. And so it's a huge opportunity for us as well. What I'm hearing from clients right now is they're mm-hmm. coming to us and they're like, okay, so we, you know, <laughs> you helped us like get resourced. Now we have this robust content strategy practice and we're working on enterprise content strategy. And now we've got executive leadership joining their heads at us and hey, you're the content people. What are we going to do about this AI thing? Uh, and uh, I, and they, you know, and, and my folks are just like, uh, I don't, do we, <laughs> why do we need what? And so yeah. how, I mean, how would you propose, like, does every organization need an LLM? Is that a thing that everybody should be looking into just because it's a thing? Do people need to think about protecting their content? Like, how do you begin to get your head wrapped around what you like, what what even you should be thinking about when it comes to this topic for your own organization? That's such a important and big question. And I mean, I would just say ultimately, like, I don't know. You know, this is like a very novel technology right now. And the exact applications, especially like practical applications, aren't totally clear. I mean, it really is you know, we're on the forefront of this. I think that, you know, you're not going to find this kind of like one use case fits all situation. It's really dependent on, on someone's business, their user needs, and like what their own constraints are. Um, I think customer facing experiences like customer service or help centers, you mentioned that earlier, are very obvious applications you know, there's just immediate opportunity to like streamline those experiences, make them more helpful. Usually companies have a lot of existing content that could potentially be used to train an LLM. Like that feels like we can wrap our minds around that one, right? But if you are getting pulled into these conversations at work and you don't know anything or know that like most people don't know that much, which is totally fine. We're all learning. I do think what I have learned over the last year or so there are some important questions to just keep asking. So, and I still ask these all the time every day in my own work. So first, you know, someone's pulling you into a conversation of like, how are we going to use LLMs? You're a content person. Like, 
what, what do we do? First, it's like, well, what customer problem or unmet need are you trying to solve with an LLM, right? Like what, what exists, what's grounded in research, hopefully. And then what is the ideal LLM experience that you want to deliver? So if there's this customer problem or need, if an LLM is going to help solve it, what is the ideal experience for that? And then I would say, I would think like, okay, then what content do we need to train the LLM to do that? Because it's not going to know how to do it on its own. And where is that content coming from? How much do you need? I mean, this is not the type of thing that one person can do on their own or even a small team can do on their own. LLMs need a ton of content. So where it's coming from and how much you need and is it usable um, are very important to ask. And then how do you know that that training is working? How do you know that LLM is getting better? What does better look like? What does quality look like for you? You know, delivering on that ultimate experience. And then finally, what safety guardrails do you need to have in place if that LLM does misbehave? Those are just some basic questions. One out of a million, or a few out of a million. Well, and for what it's worth, they're very basic, brilliant questions that I'm sure 90% of companies are not actually asking right now, right? I think it's, I th- what, what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing is that folks are under pressure to like figure out what we can do with this, not taking a step back and saying, okay, what business problems or customer problems have we been wrangling with or, or currently exist where this might be a useful application of this technology? It's, we have the technology, you know, let's, let's use that. Let's start with that. Like we're going to use it, but how, um, I mean, and, that's everything yeah. though, right? Totally. Like it's not that different than working in, you know, a product environment anyway. I do think, you know, the questions I laid out are very much like ideal. And it's, it's fair to say, we actually don't know what problem this is going to solve. We just want to see if we can actually use it for something. And that's fair too. The question even I ask every day more often than not is because people will say, I, well, we want the LLM to do this, right? We need it to do this. And I know that's a, a conversation that's happening across a ton of companies. We need an LLM to do this. Where is the content coming from? Like, that is the first question I ask all the time. Um, Because the LLM is not going to do that unless you have content that's going to teach it how to do that. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is that organizations that have like, like, let's go back to your comment about support content organizations that are like, oh, we've had this problem of support content that lives across 80 different platforms and now we can just feed it all into the LLM and then it'll magically like sort itself out and structure itself and you know and and the like very basic problems that content strategy and enterprise content strategies seek to solve in the first place which is when was the last time you looked at that content is it relevant is it accurate is it timely who owns it what happens when it comes out you know all of those like process sub yeah, yeah right exactly the <laughs> substance of it and if yeah. it is tagged by what logic and who did it and who you know I mean all yeah. of those very basic questions well not necessarily basic yeah. but or even are we allowed to use it yes what, exactly like right what privacy issues are there you know 
Yeah. And that, that all of that are like, those are content strategy questions. And totally. what is, what is so scary is that there are still so many organizations where content strategy is a function uh, that we're like, they're still kind of order takers, right? Which I can't believe, you know, how 30 years after the internet was commercialized that I still am saying those words. And yet that is the case. So if ever there were a case for organizations to get their acts together and figure out their enterprise content strategy and their content ops, like this is it, right? If you're really going to start leveraging, yeah, I said it, leverage, leveraging your content as a real business asset, you better get your acts together before you even start thinking about large language models. Now, how many organizations will do that? None, two, (laughs) right? (laughs) I know, well, you know, the information architects of the world unite, like this is your moment. Oh, no kidding. And that's, yeah. I have been, you know, well, and same with technical writers and tech com folks. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, I'm sure you two, I've been banging my fist on the desk for years saying, you know, don't forget about the ice, don't forget the tech. Like they're just the <laughs> undersung heroes of our, of our work. And now they're just like, oh, you're calling me now? Okay. I, yeah. Now I charge five times as much. All of you should charge five as times as should. much. Exactly. That's correct. Yes. So, okay, so here is, I'm sure the question that like you're going to get asked by people at Thanksgiving dinner, but like what, what like keeps you up at night about AI? What are you, what worries you? And I don't mean like, I mean, of course I always race ahead to like, and then robots took over the world and there was an uprising and that I I don't want to hear about the robot uprising. Like what actually concerns you? Well, for what it's worth, Christina, I will put in a good word with you with the robots when they do. Oh, that's that. fine. Why? Because you're, oh, I see. Because you're already <laughs> aligning. You're aligning in advance. Okay. I don't know. You're in with chat GPT. Like you're already training it. I'm sure you're going to be fine. Oh, that's right. They've already put me in. They've already put me on the, on the nice list and not on the naughty list. All right. Good. We're set. Um, you know, there are things I suppose that keep me up at night or I worry about. I mean, just like on the human level, I, I think a lot about what we don't know. You know, um, I don't know what I don't know. And so I think a lot of just like, what can't we see right now that will seem so obvious once it makes itself known? Luckily, I'm not the only person that thinks about this. And there are really smart, brilliant people thinking about it. But I I do just wonder all the time, like, oh, my gosh, what is going to just what are we going to go? Oh, of course, of course that happened, you know. Um, And so, like, what are those negative implications? We just can't predict Or what are those nefarious players in this space doing? And like a lot of other people, I worry about, you know, the spread of disinformation and especially around election season. So just like worried about that. And I do think the technology will open up opportunities and just a world of information to people who might not have had access to it before. But I do wonder, like, who will be left out or negatively impacted and and how can we mitigate that? I don't have answers to any of this. They're just the things I think about. And honestly, I just professionally and even just for my own team, I think a lot about the content designers working in this space. So it's very challenging. It's very ambiguous. And we're on this new frontier doing work that doesn't really match our job description. And like that job description was already hard to define in the first place. So that definitely doesn't get better when you're in this space. 
But ultimately, you know, I do feel hopeful this will unlock new career opportunities for content folks. It's just not clear right now what that path looks like. Maybe it will be in three months or six months or a year. We don't know. What is, you know, I, what is time in this space? I know. I know. <laughs> we say that all the time. And I, and I don't, you know, I, I truly mean that though. I mean, like the, the title of prompt engineer, like didn't really exist, you know, in any kind of meaningful way three months yeah. ago. And now all of a sudden it's just, you know, proliferating so quickly and, did I say that? Did I use that word right? Prol- proliferate? I sometimes used it. sometimes words uh, fly out of my mouth that I've like never actually said before. And I've only <laughs> read them and they come out of my mouth. And I'm just like, I, I hope I that's that's a thing that happens to me on the regular. Um, I mean, for a person who works in words, I am often not great with words. So if it makes you feel any better. That makes me feel better. It makes our, our <laughs> listeners feel better, I'm sure. Um, okay, so this is my last question. Actually, it's my yeah. second last question. What is exciting to you about oh. AI? Like when you think about like what is fun or what is helpful or what is hopeful, like what is exciting? Yes, okay. I mean, there's a lot to be excited about too. So I I do get really excited just about what AI teams in general are doing to improve healthcare. So a lot of this technology is being used to identify illnesses sooner or more accurately or give providers tools to help them deliver better health care, safer health care to people. I get very, very excited about that. I also get really excited, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, about how LLMs might be able to serve as a tool to bridge the gap for people who maybe have learning differences or skills gaps, accessibility needs, or maybe other disparities that can create a more equitable world. And maybe I'm looking at things through rose-colored lenses, but I think a ton about how we might be able to unlock new opportunities for people. And then, man, I just like geeking out on all the weird, inspiring, and just creative content people are coming up with. I don't know if you saw them, Christina, but recently there were these AI-generated images floating around the internet depicting Freddie Mercury performing at a modern-day pride parade. And, like, they took my breath away. He looked amazing. Like he had this perfectly graying mustache. He was super fit and healthy. He was in a white outfit commanding the stage at this pride parade. And it like broke my heart and just like was awe-inspiring all at the same time. And I was like, oh, like I never imagined creating something like that. It was so cool. I saw a thing that that is amazing. This is not as amazing, but it's fun. I saw a compilation going around that were the Beatles as children. Oh, and oh, it was so it was so cute and so precious. And everybody's like, "My God, where did they find? Wait, why are those backgrounds so similar? <laughs> why are their hands weird? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. No. Did you see the hipster presidents going? No. Around? Oh, that one killed me. I mean, like. Joe Biden with the mullet. It was like, it was awesome. I'll have, it was so funny. I, you know, (laughs) there are people out there using technology for good. I know it. We see it. It's delightful. Yeah. It is seeing people um, be creative with it is certainly it just, that is the thing that will get me up in the morning for a while too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Last question then, where can somebody go to learn about this? I mean, to your point, like, Everybody's just trying to figure it out and nobody, you know, we're still like trying to sift through everybody's hot takes, right? And it's complicated and it's evolving and it's getting ahead of us. 
where can people go to at least ground themselves uh, in the things that you have learned to date? Yeah, you know, two of my favorite sources are I, Hard Fork is a really great podcast. It's uh, from the New York Times and they discuss a lot of future tech topics. So they're doing a lot of work around AI and LLMs right now. And they actually have some episodes featuring Google's DeepMind CEO and Google's CEO. And I, I mean, I shared those around my team. We all did just discussing them because, you know, even though we work at the company, we still learned a ton of new things. And even hearing about challenges that say the DeepMind team is facing just helped put us, put our own work into perspective. It was super validating. Like that, those I really found valuable. And then for more of like just general takes or just understanding trends or points of view, I really love the Pivot podcast and that's hosted by Kara Swisher, who I adore, and Scott Galloway. They cover tech and business in general, but they do dig a lot into AI. And I just love hearing their perspectives on it, especially because they aren't always aligned. So just always great to hear diverse perspectives. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for joining me today on the Content Strategy Podcast. You are doing such exciting, great work and your humility around it is just sort of mind blowing. If I were in your shoes, I I would, I would just be like on the mountaintops yelling about, oh wait, you probably can't do that because of of confidentiality. (laughs) Darn, and that is why I am (laughs) self-employed. Well, I just thank you so much for giving me the time and space to talk about this. Um, It was quite an honor. Okay, we'll leave it there. Yay! Thanks so much for joining me for this week's episode of the Content Strategy Podcast. Our podcast is brought to you by Brain Traffic, a content strategy services and events company. It's produced by Robert Mills with editing from Bear Value. Our transcripts are from rev.com. You can find all kinds of episodes at contentstrategy.com. And you can learn more about brain traffic at braintraffic.com. See you soon.